Colloquium, Episode 13, Magic Horror Vibe, Aleshkot on Wolf. Hello, and welcome to the 13th episode of Colloquium. My name is Marcusan, and this is my comics creator interview podcast for Sequart. I recently had the chance to talk with writer Alesh Kott, who has made a name for himself with great runs on the Marvel Comics series Secret Avengers and Bucky Barnes' The Winter Soldier. He's also received critical acclaim for his creator-owned work for Image Comics on Zero, Change, and Wild Children. Currently, Alesh is writing Material and The Surface for Image, and Zero is in development as a television show. For this cast, Alesh and I talked about Wolf, his upcoming fantasy horror crime book published by Image. The series promises to fill the Hellblazer-sized hole in my heart by delivering a hard-hitting, paranormal detective series with a trickster lead. So if you miss the Vertigo incarnation of John Constantine's adventures, like I do, this book is made for you. The solicitation describes Wolf as true detective, but with the mythical stakes of Sandman. Having read the debut issue, which clocks in at 60 pages, I can tell you that it delivers on that high concept. I talked to Alesh about the influence of Hellblazer the importance of diversity in comics and in life, the lure of Los Angeles, and what the exact ratio of blood to magic is in the world of Wolf. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, Alash, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty great. Sorry about being late. I had a call pushed, and I had to push this call as well because of that. Oh, okay. Another interview? Um, yeah, but I was actually with an artist for a, for a miniseries I'm doing at Image next year, um, and uh, we were basically figuring things out, and uh, he signed up for it, which is awesome, so it's a good day. <laughs> it's okay, I uh, I was in my uh, Krav Maga class, and so... Uh, oh, that sounds great. It was good, I love to hit stuff, it makes me happy. Oh man, it's so good to hit stuff. <laughs> like when you hit stuff, it's just it goes somewhere proper, you know, all that all that energy. It needs to go somewhere. It does. It really does. It uh it makes me calm. And and now I'm having beer, so I feel pretty good. Wow. <laughs> That's a combo. <laughs> beer and martial arts. All right, so uh let's talk about Wolf. Let's bring it on. All right, so I've read the solicitation for issue one, but um, how do you describe the series to people who ask about it? You know, people don't really ask me about it because people really don't care about my work. <laughs> uh, sorry, that was just my phone. That was actually just someone saying that they do care about my work. Oh, I see. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was the artist that I talked about earlier. Um, you know, 
I say that it's um, that I there are a few ways I describe it. And I'll just quickly go through them. Either I say this is why I miss Hellblazer, and this is what I'm doing to bring that back into comics because I think that a crucial part of um, of any landscape is having its own way of not only explaining but also interrogating the partially invisible, the magic, all this all this stuff that are around the edges that we don't quite know about. So mm-hmm. there's specificity in that sort of a street magic, street magician element, and the trickster element, which is the basic uh you know, the basic Constantine um, Spider Jerusalem, um, wonderfully explored in one of those issues of Planetary, or, you know, that sort of an amalgamate of that and Spider Jerusalem and John Constantine and so on. Um, all of these things together, there needs to be an outlet for it. And I don't really see it. I don't really see the outlet. And my take is when I don't see something, I want to, and I miss it and I want it. If it's not just nostalgia, if it feels like it's something real that needs to be out for me, I got to make it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing, whether, you know, whether that's comics or any uh, kind of other invention in a real world. Um, the other part of it would be, I grew up uh, reading a lot of horror. Um, I mean, I read like uh, The Hellbound Heart uh, and uh, uh, The Dark Hop by Stephen King and, uh, you know, other books by Clark Barker before I was 10. Like, wow. I, this is in my in my DNA, you know. This is something that connects immediately, whether it's Clive Barker, whether it's Neil Gaiman, whether it's going further back into the uncanny of people like Lovecraft and Algernon Blackwood, although I've actually never read Algernon Blackwood apart from, like, a you know, few things, but the, the influence I am very aware of, um, and plenty other people like that. So there's that element of it. Mm-hmm. Then there's another important one, which is film noir, and um, in general, suspense and uh, the sense of deep thrill and then also exploration of America and to a much more concrete extent exploration of Los Angeles and California, which is a city that's been inextricably linked with my life and a city that I don't really see explored nearly enough. So all those elements have combined with the characters and have combined with um, my feelings about, you know, werewolves, vampires, gender, race, and um, that's the blend. Mm-hmm. Being true detective meets no gaming is what I think when someone doesn't want me to launch into a five-minute monologue. <laughs> well, you mentioned Hellblazer, and Hellblazer just so happens to be one of my favorite books of all time. And uh, ever since DC New 52'd him and canceled the Vertigo title, I've actually been looking for a replacement series. And I've talked about it on other podcasts that I've done. Um, no, so, it's when I saw it, and that's when I thought, I need to make a book for you. Yeah, so I was wondering what you thought about the cancellation of that and why you thought a replacement book was needed. You know, that's a wonderful question. Um, I'm not really interested in judging people for their business decisions or for creative decisions unless they're actually harmful to other people, in which case I'll fucking burn them. <laughs> um, that's the horror in your blood. You're a little bit evil. 
Oh no, there's no evil in burning down the bad shit. That's <laughs> just that's just good. That's uh, something that I think we could use more of. And I don't mean in any sort of a actual actively brutal way, but I think that there's something to be said for the act of making space mm-hmm. for other people, for um, other ideas, and for places that are uh, you know closer to what we actually want to see in the world. Um, in regards to Hellblazer and the cancellation, you know, I can't really tell what all the motivations behind that were. Um, I see it as a part of a cycle that occurs with um, almost anything where the fact that the thing dies, the symbol dies, does not mean that the actual thing underneath it dies. The mm-hmm. symbol and the thing are not the same thing. And Hellblazer was a symbol, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the primary demonstration of it. The primary demonstration for, of it is really the trickster archetype, I think. And that's something that we've had in our fiction since forever, because I don't think that it actually comes from primarily from fiction, but from probably the first tales that we've ever told and the first humans that we've ever seen. Right. It's that. It's that sort of a guy. But also, going with that trickster archetype, I would also sort of warn um, uh, from taking everything uh, about the book at its face value, because there will be some twists, and uh, they will be very much rooted in the character and very much rooted in everything that happens uh, since the beginning, it won't be some sort of a sudden, um, you know, complete turnaround, but there's more to, there's more ways to update on that archetype and what it means and where it can lead Mm -hmm. than just, uh, you know, having a new character who's a war veteran who can see strange stuff because he got hit by some strange gas and uh, who, um, you know, who is African-American and uh, needs a lot to make a lot of money in a short period of time for some sort of an unspecified thing that gradually uh, comes together over the course of the series. Um, but to look back to what you were asking about... Mm-hmm. I feel like it was just a just a shedding of something, and I feel like it left so much good um, for people to indulge in. I started rebuying those old, you know, Hellblazer, those uh, new versions of the Hellblazer. Oh yeah, I did too. Yeah, and there's so so much good in them. Whether it's you know tracing career of someone like um, Sean Phillips in his early work, mm-hmm. you know, and seeing how he evolves. That's like, that's fantastic. It's one of the best artists of, uh, of the comics history. And, you know, it's a masterclass in seeing how you can grow as an artist if you don't give up on yourself. Um, and how also he's incredible since the beginning, frankly. Right. Um, there's, um, Amazing one-offs, like the John Smith one-off in issue 50 or the, in the laundromat or the, or the Neil Gaiman, uh, ghost story. There's runs that are so fucking weird. And the one beautiful <laughs> thing about it, and one thing that I don't really think people usually get, or my, maybe sometimes they don't want to get it, certain people, when I see them talking about, you know, um, John Constantine as a character or Hellblazer as a series, 
is that the key and the core to it is that it was viciously political. Hellblazer was always viciously political. It was that that it was that thing that gave it the edge that it had. It was engaging with the actual issues that we have now. And that's why it was resonating so much. If we're, you know, going past the trickster archetype, which is an obvious big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see people do more thinking about the fictions they consume. But uh, I think that what it really says about me is that I would love to think more about the fictions I make and consume which is something that I'm thankfully focusing on primarily. Um, that's sort of my thinking. I'm grateful that it happened. I'm grateful that it ended and that it made space for war. Yeah, it's interesting because I've, I haven't been happy about it ending. Um, I wanted to see it continue, um, and I don't like that it's continued in other forms that are kind of watered down to me. But I like this idea that, you know, you're – picking up the torch. It's a different book, but you're picking up on the same themes and carrying it on. Yeah, sort of have to, you know. It sort of reminds me of that <laughs> when Mark Millar was doing the promotion for Nemesis, and he was saying, like, yeah, what if Batman was a total dick? <laughs> right. And I'm going, well, it's not exactly what I'm doing here, right? And also, he got shut down pretty quickly by DC, if I remember correctly, with that specific tagline. But... um but there's a part of that. There's a part of this feeling of like, come the fuck on. We're all making these stories and you will never be able to enforce the kind of a copyright that you would probably love to enforce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm not talking specifically about DC, but any corporation in general, because these things are archetypes. You don't have to use the specific mask of the archetype which is really where the similar copyright similarity starts and which is something that I've completely avoided mm-hmm. because I don't really care about ripping someone off. But using those classic archetypes that you can trace back centuries and centuries, that's a treasure trove of storytelling. I mean, the only two books that I keep on my table right now, on my work table, and that's pretty much the, be- the way I like it, is just the Oxford American writers Thesaurus and uh, Complete Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. and because so much of what I need is in those two books. <laughs> well, I mean, everything's been done. It's the twist that you put into uh, your story that's based on the archetypes that really uh, makes it uh, different and matter. You know, I disagree with that. I don't think everything's been done. I know what you're saying, and I think that to a certain extent that's true, but I also think to a certain extent it's not, because we often, people in Western storytelling often seem to get locked into this mode of it's all just the archetypes and it's all just, uh, you know, this very calculable storytelling, even though it can be imbued with incredible emotionality, it can be completely honest that there are just these things. But the thing is, that's completely missing on um, all the Eastern storytelling. And the Eastern storytelling and the blending that is going to happen over the next hundred years, I think is going to be incredibly engaging and something that I very much want to be a part of because part of my uh, just influence library are, you know, our creators, our Asian filmmakers very often. And I'm not just talking about Park Chan-wook, but like people like Kim Ki-duk or like uh, Wong Kar-wai 
And going back further, you know, literature and uh, thought, uh, ways of thinking and ways of being like Buddhism or Taoism, there's so much. There's so much to learn and so much to blend further that I'm just really excited about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely can see that where you're blending different genres. And um, I don't know, I find it like you could trace everything back to something else, even though it might be something that you see as unique now. Um, it still has roots in something else. I agree with that. But I also think that that interpretation is inevitably only really leads you so far because so many different people will trace it to so many different things and they will likely all be right. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a point where you have to just not do that and just accept the story as something new, you know, because yeah. you could do that all day. You could spend all your time analyzing something and not really enjoying the story. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's a part of this, like, whole, I call it the culture of judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, this sort of um culture where we make judgments as link bait. And, you know, or as just just to be heard. And I think that it really connects with the fact that we all really want to be heard and we all really want to be loved. And Internet is one way where that can be. Um, there's some measure of that. I think that is the confusion of love for attention, which is something that I've had to deal with and I have to deal with and I have to figure out my way mm -hmm. out of. Because that's, I think, a tremendously uh, attention and love are too tremendously different things really um but they uh when combined are incredibly powerful and i think that there's an overall drive in me to create deeper and to create with both more attention and more love and that means uh letting certain things pass out of my life and it means um setting up the new to be closer to me and closer to what I really feel um, mm -hmm. than before, which is sort of an, I think, an ongoing life process in general and everything one does if one's committed to evolution. Um, but it feels extra intense right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, when did the idea for this series Wolf first come to you? Did you always want to do a supernatural crime noir series, or um, was it really Hellblazer that uh, kicked it off in your mind? You know, I really don't know, but it's funny how Hellblazer, how significant Hellblazer is for my own storytelling because, and for my own career, because Wild Children, which was my debut, really stemmed from multiple sources, but one of the key ones was that I was really pissed off about Hellblazer shoot never being published, which was an issue of Hellblazer written by Warren Ellis and illustrated by Phil Jimenez um, about school shootings. Oh, yeah, it was called Shoot, I remember. Yeah, and I was so pissed off about it because that, to me, seemed the case of um, corporate cowardice. Yeah, and it's why Warren Ellis left the book, too. I, and I completely understood, like, I feel I really understood and deeply, deeply respected that because, holy shit, that's, yeah, that's, if you make something that is of value and that says something important to the public conversation and you get censored and still supported by people who should be supporting your art, 
in ideal under ideal circumstances that's yeah that's uh understandable you know of course will corporations ever really focus primarily on supporting your art or will they uh primarily focus on making money and not upsetting anyone well gee that's a question right mm-hmm. um but i think that's where the that's where the core or one of the key factors really come in is this sense of like being like i i, I won't read more hellblazer now right what do i do like and then being like well that's fine i can read so many books you know i frankly i read so little comics nowadays i read not not little but i don't read nearly as many comics as um as uh i used to when i was like i don't know 15 to 19 or something like that mm-hmm. um, and i like I really, really, I find that fascinating because I, there's other um, writers and artists who don't read comics, but you do so many comics. It's kind of odd to me that you uh, don't read as much in the genre that you uh, work in. Um, yeah, well, I, uh, it's really I read a lot of books, and mm-hmm. I watch a lot of movies, and I read a lot of screenplays. Um, but. I think that a large part of it is that I'm sort of burned down on comics as a community. And I'm also burned down on comics in terms of, in terms of, uh, making, in terms of reading stuff that's genuinely feeling new. At least if we're talking American comics. Mm-hmm. Vast majority of what comes out does not engage me. Vast majority. We're talking 97% or 98% of everything that comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that that means that 97, 98% of what comes out is bad, but I'm saying that it does not fit my standards for interesting fiction. Right. Um, you know, like I read so many different books that are, that feel and watch things that are infinitely feeling like they're more, more connected to something that I care for, you know, like Maggie Nelson's Bluets or like Laird Barron's short stories or, and that's just like me picking off random things from, uh, what I read in the past few, uh, past few weeks, you know, or Marcus Aurelius or et cetera, et cetera. And it's not because there are no good comics. I think that this is probably better time to read comics than it was ever. And there are comics that I deeply, deeply love and buy. But overall, it's just um, there's an imbalance for me in much in in how much of the other stuff I read, and I also think part of it might be I just overdosed in comics, sort of. You know, like mm-hmm. there's such a thing as reading too much and thinking too much, and when you're making so many things uh, that are already within the art form, sometimes the last thing I want after doing that is to see a comic. It's not because I don't love them. It's just because I, when I spend the entire day in a mind space where I think in panels, I don't want to think in panels anymore. <laughs> you don't want to see them anymore, right? <laughs> I, well, I see panels every, I could, frame, I could frame my movements into room right now into panels, you know, and it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a beautiful thing, but it, uh, as with anything, the dose is the key between it being a poison and a healing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so comics is an art form. I love deeply. Um, comics as a, 
community, I recognize that there's a lot of wonderful people and that there it's getting better, but it's still pretty problematic to me in a lot of ways, in ways publishers, certain publishers use their creatives um, in uh, how reactionary um, certain publishers are, in how, um, frankly, um, like aggressively um, unpleasant certain readers can be. Mm-hmm. Like all these things, I think that it's probably the same for almost every art form, but there feels a particular disconnect. And I think, on the other hand, it says something wonderful about comics that gamer gators weren't able to really, like, take much of a foothold in the industry. It feels like we're definitely doing some things extremely right when it comes to... or extremely right. That we're doing them well and could be doing better still. Uh, when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to uh, creating more diverse fictions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a process, and I wouldn't be shocked if in five years I'm going to be reading way more comics again. I would be actually very happy about that. But right now, I probably read like six to eight comics per month. That's probably mostly, it's mostly trades. But that's not too many for me, you know? I also read like probably ten books. Mm-hmm. And uh, So was it other media that really influenced the formation of Wolf then? You know, yeah, there are. Thankfully. Um <laughs> <laughs> A lot, actually. So you, we we have Hellblazer, we have um, we have uh, Junji Ito. I know that. Uh, it's a horror. It's a horror uh, manga creator. It's the Spiral, right? The Spiral, for oh, example. Yeah, that yeah. Was um, recently, recently, he also came out with a with a Dark Horse came out with a new uh, book of his. Well, not technically new, but it's essentially about fish with spider legs, fish with spider legs, or pretty mm-hmm. much something like that. It's pretty fucking creepy. I have it right next to my uh, bed right now. It's fantastic. Um, it's one of those uh, books that totally proves how untrue the idea that we can't do horror well in comics is. It's completely dumb. It's it. Of course, it uh, the idea. I mean, the book is fantastic and it's creepy. And if you read it at night, you're not gonna want to see any fish the next day. <laughs> um, it's great. Um, BPRD would be another another and Hellboy would be another great example of something that's influencing me deeply. Like BPRD is so good. I think that's an underrated series, really. Oh, you know, I think that Guy Davis is very underrated. And I think that the readability of BPRD is very underrated. I don't think that it has particularly high literary merits, but I think that in terms of uh, being a massive, incredibly readable potboiler that has very engaging characters, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't really go much under the surface of things, but what it does, it does incredibly well. And I really love it. I really like it. And I think that Hellboy is the series that I will, you know, come back to more often. But I think that uh, they both together have an atmosphere for the ages that is so, so fantastic. You like the Mignolaverse. I really like it. Yeah. <laughs> I really too. like what, what Mike does in it and how, uh, how built on the very simple combination of Lovecraft and Kirby, it is. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a recipe for awe. 
in the right hands. Um, you know, then someone like Guillermo del Toro, which is obviously connected with it, and, you know, that's not really about the Hellboy movies, but more about the del Toro's approach in general. Hannibal, the TV series, is fantastic. Um, Laird Barron's writing, Lovecraft's writing, um, who else? What else is there? Um, a lot of nonfiction, a lot of nonfiction, like uh, the new Jim Crow, um, and uh, various other books on military uh, prison complex in America, um, books like Who We Be by Jeff Chang and uh, other other books on race and uh, on racism and on black community and how we can actually um, work together. And uh, all these things really feed into Wolf because mm-hmm. both Wolf and Material have really, really diverse protagonists and really diverse characters. And the reason for that is that they need to really reflect the world that we're in now. And and it always was that way for me, you know, since Wild Children. You know, there's, I don't know, like out of five people, there's two girls, two guys, and uh, uh, one person who could be trans or could be, or could be cross-dressing or could be pretty much anything. Um, there's really no point for me in, um, in, uh, not focusing on that diversity because it's what I lived in since being a kid. Mm-hmm. Even when it, uh, you know, even in Czech Republic where, um, you know, seeing a black person would be a shock for a lot of people at certain times if they were over a certain age. Um, um, almost like not a massive shock, but like, you know, surprise, um, or, you know, a lot of casual, casual racism, et cetera, et cetera. I grew up around, uh, gypsies, the town where I grew up, uh, the big, one of the bigger ones, uh, has a massive gypsy diaspora, um, all these things. And just looking around myself fed into mm-hmm. fictions. They're really the truest possible fictions for me personally to s- you know, to uh, to talk of and to talk about. So that's why I'm doing material on Wolf. Um, mm-hmm. That's how I'm doing them. Well, uh, given that Wolf is a black man, did you feel an extra responsibility to uh, understand uh, black culture before you started writing that, given that you're, you know, from a place where there aren't a lot of uh, black people? Well, of course, but... It's not really something that started with Wolf. It's something that started long before because of just wanting to be a good person. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to understand people. I need to understand their roots. I need to understand the ways in which they're, if they're persecuted, I need to understand the ways. I need to understand the system. And this is really the core of um, something that's always been an obsession of mine is a study of systems, and I think I got that from my uh, grandfather, was on my dad, grandfather on my dad's side, who was a, uh, um, I think might have had a slight Asperger's, and who uh, was a physics and mathematics professor, and obsessed with systems. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you can study systems and not see the people. But that way lies a move towards being possibly a sociopath and also towards a certain very totalitarian type of thinking. And to me, the systems and the people have to be intrinsically connected and understood together. So looking at that and studying that 
and traveling a lot since being a kid. So that's sort of like those boundaries, you know, have started breaking down pretty quickly, both in my real world and my fictional world when I started reading more stuff. Um, all those things were pretty much like they were solidly broken down, but I went, well, I need to learn more. And from learning more and learning more, I just eventually arrived to wanting to do Wolf and wanting to do it that way. And that in turn, again, turned into that thing where I went, now I can do twice as much research than before <laughs> because now I have another thing to feed it into as well. You know, mm-hmm. now I'm writing off business expenses when I buy these books and now I can, uh, now I can really work it and really get into certain aspects that have been, um, fascinating to me or that I felt I needed to learn more upon. So that responsibility is something that is inherent for me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, what started that for you? Why? I mean, from reading your books and following you on Twitter and Facebook and just talking to you now, um, you know, you seem like you're a very progressive person. You're really interested in exploring cultures, politics, sexuality, and just uh, new experiences in your life and in your writing. Um, but what were the early experiences that caused you to be interested in exploring all these different cultures, politics, sexuality, people? What started your yeah. your curiosity? Yeah, I hear you. Um, is this sort of a it's sort of an you know chicken or egg question because um, I don't know quite how much of it is something that. I got genetically and how much of it is something that I've learned. But I think that I can trace it to certainly to a lot of readers in my family generations Mm -hmm. back. I can trace it to I can trace it to people in my uh, family that were healers in a certain way. You know, um, it's funny when we talk about people who are shamans, we um, in Western culture often mean that in like, oh, that's something unscientific that we don't do. But really, um, shamanism is something that is pretty much inherent in every culture. We would just have a slightly different word for it now. And I think that actually at the core of my fiction, most of it is really about shamanism because it's about creating a gate towards something new, towards Mm -hmm. um, reinventing myself and in turn helping the reader reinvent themselves in turn in some ways that, you know, are open for for the readers. Um, So a part of it is definitely coming from that and from the family. Part of it is coming from being incredibly encouraged to read uh, as a kid. And also just, I don't even know how, but uh, I know that my mom used to read to me when uh, before I was even born. Um, and that might have had some effect on me learning uh, to read really, really fast when I was a kid. I, like, I knew how to read by three. and uh, Or like, I don't know three and a few months, something like that. And I just started devouring everything because it was, I think, one direction where I wasn't restrained. I wasn't restricted, you know, Mm -hmm. like when you're a three-year-old or four-year-old, you don't necessarily, everyone will pay attention to you if you're trying to get out of the house. (laughs) But people might not necessarily pay as much attention to you if you're just like, 
prancing around the library and then hiding in the corner with a book. <laughs> and because they know you're there, and it doesn't occur to them that you might be reading something terribly fucked up. Um, but you know, <laughs> sometimes it did, and I think that they learned with age and that they were trying to restrict by that, but by that time it was already over um, before they even knew it. But that was another part of it. And uh, then being also very, very encouraged by my parents to read whatever the fuck I wanted from a certain age. Like, you know, my mom bought me Clyde Barker's Books of Blood when I was like nine or ten. You know, I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that she knows exactly what it was. But um, <laughs> but she also bought me like Bukowski and Rainbow when I was like 12. You know, so it was, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm being encouraged to read this stuff because she knows it's good literature, you know. Right. And uh, that was really important. And then also I broke my arm real bad when I was about four. And what happened is that probably through my dad's idea of me being an amazing soccer player um, into a bit of a, you know, a problematic uh, peco because, you know, you can still run, but you can't really do much when you have, like, extra kilograms of stuff on your arm for four months and then you have to do rehab per year. Right. But what I did was I read. Hmm. So all these explorations... They connected to, I think, something to something that we all have, but it was also encouraged, and that's why it grew more and more. And that is encouraging the imagination. Oh, that's I think that it's crucial for uh, for us to encourage our children to open up their imaginations instead of trying to hold them down. I think that it's one of the key lacks in our culture at present. I think that the reason that we that we are undergoing some very turbulent times right now is because our imaginations are also partially very much fueling in that direction. You know, it's like uh, if you look at how government works or if you look at how money works, money is just something of imagined value that we all agree upon. You know, we actually literally do imagine the value. And the same things go to um, things like, you know, defense system funding or anything else. It's if we didn't think that these things were necessary, who knows how that would affect the world. So our imaginations really affect everything in turn. And my imagination being encouraged to not be bound into some sort of a fight or a flight reflex, but to really be hungry and learn of the world, I think was one of the key key things for me. Yeah, I mean that's key. I mean there's people who break away from a static environment uh, without that, but um, the encouragement certainly helps. I mean, my parents were like that, but I think of my wife, who's from uh, Kentucky, and her whole family, they're very set in their ways, you know, the whole Bible, and they never want to leave their town, and, um, you know, she got out, and, you mm -hmm. know, I'm a brown man, she married a brown man, and it's like, uh, I think of that, like how some people just, there could be one simple thing, like you got a book and started reading it, and then you wanted to know more, and then it just broadens your entire horizon, your the way you view the world. So I, th I think that's great that it happened uh, for you. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, I'm really, I'm really happy, and it's nice to hear about your wife because it's always. I know how how hard the family uh, can be when it comes to. When it comes to binding you with, you know, unnecessary rules and unnecessary restrictions and things that are downright bad, and it's really great to 
hear about someone who just decided not to give a fuck. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fantastic. She's, she's awesome. Well, getting back to Wolf, um, you know, your book has a simple title. It's called Wolf, but it instantly makes me think of the tough kind of wild dog beast that haunts our forests. It also kind of reminds me of that subpar uh, Jack Nicholson film, Wolf. Oh, <laughs> that's Jack Nicholson in it. How subpar can it be? He's had a lot of subpar <laughs> movies, man. Go back into the catalog. He's a great actor, but a lot of subpar man, films. I'll watch, I'll watch a bad Jack Nicholson movie almost any day just to, just to watch Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Okay, I can give you that one. Um, so, but was there a specific reason why you chose Wolf as the title, um, other than it's the name of the character? Yes. <laughs> but you're not going to tell me. I'm not going to tell you. You're going to know okay. my issue for. We will. Okay. All right. Well, then moving on. Um, uh, Wolf is set in Los Angeles, and I know that you just moved back there after living in New York for a while. Um, why did you decide to? Uh, Head back to the West Coast. It just felt like the right thing to do. Um, it was a combination of many, many elements. Um, the medical marijuana industry. Um, the no, I'm joking. Actually, I don't have a car yet. <laughs> um, I don't have a card yet. Um, but uh, processing. Yeah, I mean, California is is the first place. Uh, it's the place where I actually entered the United States for the first time. Mm-hmm. In 2009, LA specifically, um, it's a place where I lived the longest of the past 10 years. And mm-hmm. it's a place where the membrane between reality and fiction is really, really thin. And mm-hmm. it's so freaking weird. <laughs> it's... It's weird in a way that feels, um, you know, weird comes from a from a uh, this ancient wor- a word called weird, like W Y R D, which is essentially something that um, it has a few translations, but one of the key ones is fate. And I've never seen uh, when someone s- s- uses the word weird as a negative, I go, well, I don't really think about it that way because that's not really what it. Weird is not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's something that connects in a way that is uncalculable. And to me, that's really the core of life. You can't really quantify life. You can't really quantify um, how things affect you emotionally. And L.A. affects me emotionally, and California does, in ways that I don't fully understand. So coming to them and exploring them more um, is very crucial for me. Mm-hmm. Now, have your feelings about L.A. changed since you were in New York? You were in L.A., then you moved to New York, now you're back. Do you feel differently about it now that you're back there? I mean, the thing is, I don't really feel like I'm just here or uh, or just there. I feel like I never left L.A., and I also feel like I'll never really leave New York. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years... Um, uh, me and my primary partner or uh, whatever our little wolf enclave will be by then um, will have a place somewhere in New York State as well, you know? Um, a summer home, perhaps? You know, it's uh, it's entirely possible and it's something that could be really, really cool. Like, Hudson's a beautiful place. Um, and 
And uh, my feelings changed, sure, um, in certain ways. In certain ways, they have not at all. I love both of those cities deeply. Um, I think that part of New York that I've learned more about is that it's a city that sort of uh, lives on a myth it created and perpetuated, but it's not a myth that is true anymore, and that's the myth of the starving artist who can come and make their mark. Mm-hmm. I think that it's something that's uh, perpetuated by really wealthy and mostly old people in order to actually suck the young people dry. I don't think that is impossible, but I think that is extremely, extremely stressful, and I think it really shortens your lifespan. And that's very, very different from the way things were when you have a city that is sort of, you know, in certain parts very cheap and uh, encouraging for beginning artists. I think that one of the key things for a beginning artist to have is enough space to fail. Mm-hmm. And enough room to fail and to fail again in different ways because I think that's how you learn about the world. You can't just do things because you feel that there are going to be hits. You've got to do things because you feel you want to do them. And then you see what happens. It's like it's learning. It never ends. And right. um, L.A. has more space. You know, on a, on a geographical level, too, L.A. is just a place where you can have that space. New York is very constrained. That constriction can be very useful in short term, I think, because it, like, juices you out. But in long term, it just will take years and years off your lifespan, very likely. Unless you're mm-hmm. Taylor Swift living in 13 fucking million house above <laughs> everyone singing about how you love New York. You don't know shit about New York, lady. <laughs> you know, and I'm not like dissing Taylor Swift all across the way for everything or anything like that. But that that is a very specific wealthy person entitlement. The surface level, New York, yeah. incredibly surface level, and it's and the worst thing is there are so many people who will be influenced by it. And you know, it's like, come on, that's not necessarily you're selling a myth. You're selling a myth that's not true anymore. It's um. Yeah, there's a reason why most of the creative class in New York, or large amounts of creative class in New York, are right now moving to L.A. If we're talking the young creatives, you know, there, it's happening so much that there's a fucking New York Times article on, on it. And you know that once in New York Times, it's been happening for the past mm. three years already. Or, or your DC Comics. Or your DC Comics. <laughs> um, well, how important is L.A. and California to Wolf? Because you chose to set it in L.A. What made you want to put the book there? You know, it's completely crucial. Um, because I wanted to write another book set in California. And it was just it was just a case of going, this feels right. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And I'll think about why that's the right thing after. Because in certain in certain instances, that's really the thing, you know, I got to do like, I don't want to think everything through all the way. It's like when William Gibson starts writing a book, he writes the first sentence and then sees what happens. He doesn't write the entire outline. And um, then there are other people who write the entire outlines and that's fine too. And I'm, you know, learning and every book is different, but I don't, I want to have certain parts that just feel like, Oh, this is really resonating. I want to do it this way because it's resonating. And I want to find why. I want to find the mystery at the core of it as I go. I want to uncover it gradually. So the mystery of California, the mystery of L.A., 
And the mis- yeah, just the mystery that even is reflected in the main characters, that's really at the core of it. Has the move back to L.A. had uh, any significant impact on how you write the book because you're in the city again? No. Um, I also haven't written much of it in the past few weeks so since I moved, so I can't really tell. But, I mean, if anything, I wouldn't be surprised if certain geographical locations that are now, again, becoming more alive in my mind because of being here would have more prominent time. It's going to inevitably affect it in some way. Um but as of yet, I'm not seeing it. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't plan on driving around to different locations to scout them out for the book or anything like that? You know, I feel like I know LA pretty well. I would like to drive to some locations, but for near future, I don't need to because really most of the locations I've already seen and I know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, having lived in the U.S., I think you said since 2009, um, do you feel like you're an American now or something else? I mean, frankly, I feel like I'm, you know, the first citizen of the world really comes to mind. I don't really believe in states much. Mm-hmm. I don't really believe that you need to be a member of a state in order to be a human being and be respected as such. I actually think that the gradual process and the erosion of states will be something that we'll see in play over the next few hundred years, if we're still around. And... If California doesn't fall in the ocean? Also that. <laughs> doesn't make it fall into the ocean. Um, how smooth is that marketing? Like, the marketing for that movie is like, oh, yeah, we we got a guy called The Rock for an earthquake movie. It's <laughs> it looks like, so terrible. It's like, whoa, you just, like, he's going to battle that earthquake. The Rock is going to battle that earthquake. <laughs> How is he going to fight? Why does every disaster movie look exactly the same? Um, I mean, I think it's because of what we talked about earlier in terms of, like, the limits that we're putting on our imaginations. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, – there's there are some shots that I've seen in it that look like things that I haven't seen before. Like, the entire thing of, you know, the entire L.A. moving um, – like, those are interesting shots, but in general, yeah, it feels like it's going to be more of the same uh, quite a bit. Um, I'm hoping The Rock punches a fault line, because that would be amazing. It's entirely possible. <laughs> so you're working on quite a few series right now that yeah. seem different from one another. Yeah. Um, uh, given that Wolf is this supernatural crime book... Uh, do you have to get in a different mindset to write this book uh, versus something like The Surface or uh, Winter Soldier? Oh, absolutely. You know, every single one of those books is just completely, completely different. It's uh, it's something that I created for myself and something that I wanted created for myself on purpose because I want to grow as an artist, as a human being. And if you do the same thing over and over, you turn out to be Stan Lee. Um, and I don't want to be Stan Lee. Um, you know, and or anyone who does the same thing over and over. Um, I want to be me, and my my feeling for what I want to do in my life is I want to grow to be a better and better writer and storyteller, and I want to explore the world not just through my daily life on a physical level, but also in my fictional level. So, and also the things are just created, uh, the fictions are created to have different means. You know, every, every fiction to me is an act of, um, changing the world. You know, originally all of 
all that fiction was was really a way to change the world. You know, we make the we 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 draw the hunt uh, on on the wall of the cave to show ourselves that we're going to find the bison. Sorry. <laughs> ah, better now. Bless you. Um, thank you. And you know, we'll draw the bison or something like that. And these things are. That's the same stuff. We're still doing the same thing. The caves mm-hmm. are more advanced, and um, but to a large extent, we're doing the exact same thing. And you you don't want to be stagnant. You always want to try something different. Well, not always. That's the thing. I think that one of the most experimental things for me to do at the moment is to be really, really mainstream. So I'm going to be going really hardcore with that over the next year or so. But, but you know, when I say mainstream, I don't necessarily mean Marvel or DC mainstream. I mean sharing my ideas with a much wider audience than ever before and learning how to do that and uh, figuring that out. Like television, you mean? Um, I don't mean just that, um, but that's a part of it. Television, movies, but also um, communicating uh, through comics, because art is really communication. Communicating through comics in ways that are um, more focused on connecting with people past just myself. There's something a friend of mine wrote recently where she said uh, that... uh, you know, there's this thing about just, like, writing just for yourself, being, like, selfish about it, and that's how you make a lot of fiction good. But she said that that's not necessarily true and that it helps her to think about um, other people, you know, some other people who might uh, connect with it, and that it helps her to uh, not be overly selfish because that sort of selfishness can also block you as an artist and keep you creating um, this really overtly self-indulgent stuff and I feel like it's something I've done and uh, not with everything but with certain things that I've done over the years I feel like I've done that and done that to an extent where it didn't feel right anymore and I'm grateful for that because that um, the failure of that is really something that I can learn from but it's not something I want to blindly repeat so learning how to communicate the kind of ideas and the kind of emotions that I want to communicate, and I think that the really the core denominator for these are uh, the word is the word deep, and you know not necessarily just deep in like incredibly thoughtful way, but just like deep, like resonant, very resonant things, ideas and emotions. I think that one of the ways that I'm going with going forward is um, the ease of the delivery, because when you look at someone like um, uh, when you look at something like Winter Soldier uh, that I did with Marco Rudy, you know, that mm. book is gorgeous. And it's a book that's, um, you know, really interesting to look at and to read. But it's so, so completely, um, it's, uh, it's just hermetically sealed. If you don't read comics, it's going to be really hard for you to read it. To read it. Mm-hmm. It's inventive, and it's inventing, uh, you know, parts of a language that have not been necessarily used. And Marco's fantastic with that, but it's not the clearest book to read. And that's something I want to get away from overall, because I want to really communicate clearly, you know, looking at someone like Spielberg or looking at someone like, 
um, you know, even like something like Breaking Bad or someone like Mark Millar, you know, all of these things um, and all of these creators. It's not that there are not ideas they are mind-blowing, you know. Show me a better sci-fi movie than Jurassic Park. But um, it's that the ideas are presented in a form where even if you're a five-year-old, you will look at something like Jurassic Park and you will go, holy shit, my mind is blown. Yeah, I mean, Mark Miller is exceptional at that. I think you're very good at that, though, Alash. I think you're you're good at... at um taking big ideas and distilling them down into easily uh, digestible and um, easily accessible comics. You know, thank you for that. I don't think I'm nearly as good as I can be. Well, you're not as good as Mark Miller, because that guy's like, he's he's got it down. <laughs> but you're, you're yeah, definitely yeah, good at it. Yeah, but it's it's a process, you know? It's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be satisfied with, I don't want to be satisfied to the extent where I'm going to be, um, just sort of masturbating in front of people, you know, with my, with my writing, like, and it would be what I would be doing if I would be repeating this thing. I want to be like, I want to give people the best I can do. And the best writing I can Mm -hmm. do is really in further distillation of that and under, and understanding and uh, refining what I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's a tough trick. I mean, because I think of writers like uh, Grant Morrison, who is brilliant but I only like half of his books because some of them are just so out there the way they're presented. It doesn't draw me in. Um, But the other half, he is very successful at writing those in a way that gets me invested in them, um, but still presents the bigger ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I feel you on that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the protagonist, uh, Wolf. He's a detective named uh, Antoine Wolf. Um, as we mentioned, he's African-American, and from the solicitation, we know that he's this hard-boiled paranormal detective with a death wish. But what more can you tell us about the character that we'll be following in this series? You know, I'll, I'm, I'll be really simple, because I don't really want to tell people too much about mm-hmm. I want them to come in not knowing much, and to be in order to really be immersed in it. Um, I can say that he was in Iraq, that he got exposed to a gas of uncertain, of an uncertain origin, that he can mm-hmm. see things that other people can't, and that that's why and how he makes a lot of his money. And um, I can say, you know, that he's suicidal, and I can say that by the end of issue one, he's in a position that he really did not expect to ever be in as a person, because he wasn't really planning to live very long. But if I said anything more, I'd be really telling you elements of issue one, and I don't want to do that. That's good. That's pretty good. That's neat, because he's got powers, uh, but you're not sure how that works yet. Um, the solicitation also mentions that he's saddled uh, with the responsibility for an orphaned teenage girl who might be the key uh, to the impending apocalypse. And anytime apocalypse is mentioned, it usually means the story is going to be pretty epic in scale. So is Wolf one huge yarn that you're spinning, or is it m- going to be more of an episodic series? It's going to be both. It's going to be, it's definitely, it definitely will have arcs that will be very um, compact, but at the same time, it will also um, form one very neat story together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is it the biggest scope of a, in a book that you've ever written? 
I don't know. I don't know how to measure that even. <laughs> it has it has hell. So <laughs> that's pretty big. That measure alone is probably one of the biggest ones. But yeah. Yeah, I think Wolf wins then. Hell puts you over the top. Do you think there's actually going to be some kind of apocalypse in our world? Oh, um, I mean, our world is literally an, an apocalypse. Um, apocalypse means change. You know, it's like when we're going back to the actual roots of what the world's uh, what the words mean. Apocalypse means change. It doesn't mean end of the world. It means a change of things and. I think that the a misunderstanding about what the world what the word apocalypse really means is at the core of a lot of issues that we're having with our present. It's the world's not going to end in some major way. The world's never going to world's never going to probably end in you know completely because I mean universe just goes on and goes on. Maybe eventually it will end in some heat death or whatever, but then something else will probably be born. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're really talking about when we're talking about apocalypse is something that has a whole different actuality. The apocalypse that we're using is that's just a symbol denoting our fear of our own extinction because we are not the world. We are not the world. We are just a tiny part of it. And as humanity is the fear of human extinction. That's the real thing. Um, and Will we be extinct? You know, I have no idea. But if I've learned anything in my life, it's that fear of death is boring. <laughs> it's There are real good reasons for it sometimes, of course, you know, which is the reason why I won't jump out of a plane or be on a motorbike. But... Really? Or or swim with a shark. Yeah, it's just like the, the high-risk ratio is just not that interesting for me. And mm-hmm. it's not that I have, like, I would be on a bike and I would ride on a bike. That's not a problem. But I wouldn't do it. Uh, I wouldn't buy myself a bike, you know? Right, like, right. I just, yeah, it just doesn't really uh, strike me as that uh, that good investment on my time. Also, I have Grand Theft Auto 5. What more do I need? Um, <laughs> but... Um, so, with in in that regards, in human uh, in terms of human extinction, which is actually something that connects with Wolf um, and where it's going a bit, I don't know, and I don't mind one way or another. I'm okay with both. Um, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, good. I'll do my best to uh, ensure it doesn't happen. But you know, I can only do so much, and. Right. Uh, in terms of fear of change, I think that's one of the crucial fears that we need to overcome. I think, and I need to overcome as a person too. Um, the more I find I accept change and accept my belief that things will turn out okay if I do what I need to do, I feel I need to do, even if I can't really predict how it's going to play out. I've been almost always rewarded by that. You know, almost always I've been in some way rewarded for taking the leap. And I don't mean that as a, like, you know, white privileged guy, but Mm -hmm. I mean that as a, I've taken leaps where I um, said no to lots of money when I was literally eating $1 tuna and had like maybe a hundred bucks and didn't have a place to stay. Um, And I Mm -hmm. said no to gigs because they felt ethically wrong. 
And I was, well, I sure hope that this is going to be okay. But I didn't know. <laughs> and it turned out it was perfectly okay. And it turned out then, then I got an offer to gig that turned everything around. Um, Were these gigs for comics or um, for something one else? One of them was for comics. Another one of them was for, like, a biography of a politician that would have paid me a shit ton of money um, in advance even. And they were just like, you know, I would have the survival part of me would have been sorted out, but the actual life part would have been dressed mm-hmm. different. And I don't want to survive. I want to live. And in order to live, one has to accept change. And so one has to accept apocalypse, both on a personal and on a universal level. That's what I believe. Well, and it, I think it's a good lesson for anybody who's trying to get involved or, you know, create something that you don't have to say yes to everything. You know, you, you don't have to just do it to make money. You can have an artistic vision and you can still be successful even if you pass on something. Yeah. So how have you plotted Wolf? Is this something you've mapped out for the long haul? I know it's an ongoing series, but is it something that, uh, is it going to be one of your longest books? Do you do you know? Um, You know, it depends on the sales. Um, It really does depend on the mm-hmm. sales. Um, if we do it right, and I think we will. And if the book sells enough, which uh, is out of my hands after a certain point, I would love to go for at least the same or bigger length than zero. But at the same time, I'm really open to, you know, like it could end up being 60 issues if it does well enough and if I see that the story goes. But I'm sort of staying open at the moment. I know where the first three story arcs go. And besides that, I can extend or I can play around with it, but I don't have a set point. Um, I just want to do the book as long as it feels good, as long as it feels like I'm um, like I'm getting properly rewarded for it at the same time, because that needs to happen. Like it's you know, I could pretend that uh, the money question doesn't phase me, but I need the book to make dollars uh, in order to actually have the time to make it. So if those two things cohere and they work together well enough, I would love to just do it for however long my heart says do it. Mm -hmm. And then dive off the cliff into something else. (laughs) So you're tired of tuna, is what you're saying? Oh, I I have not really eaten tuna for a long, long time. I'm really happy about it. So you've uh, written a handful of image books now. How has the experience been working with them on uh, on Wolf? Perfect. I don't really need to, um I want to do what I want to do and they say yes. Um is my experience, you know. I don't feel um stifled in any way. I feel like uh supporting my creativity and the creativity of my co-creators is what the entire um uh, image philosophy is about and they are delivering on that 100 percent was that the first place you took the book or did you maybe consider another publisher for it no that's the first place Mm -hmm. i don't consider other publishers for my creator own stuff oh okay um you love image then it's it's also yeah and it's also a matter of the deal um no one no other publisher has the kind of a deal that image has you know, it's just, it's a higher risk deal theoretically because you don't necessarily get paid a nice page advance or whatever. But 
in terms of me owning what I do and my co-creators owning what they do and not having to deal with anyone telling us you can do this or you can do that, anything like that, that's wonderful. That's the perfect, perfect relationship for me to have with my publisher. And I'm not interested in, um, in exploring other venues. It's like, um, you know, like, I could be, I, I guess, I, I guess I could be poly in, in publishing too when it comes to that. But, and I have a, like a brief fling, you know, DC there, Marvel there or whatever. But it's not really the same. And image really feels like the home for me in terms of comics. That's where I started. That's where I'm growing. And it's where I do my best work. Mm-hmm. With the exception of Secret Avengers, which I really, really love and think is fantastic. Yeah, I think that's a great book, too. It's it's hilarious as well. Thank you. So the first issue of Wolf drops in July, and it's going to be nearly 60 pages, which is a pretty hefty chunk of story to start the series. Uh, why did you want to launch Wolf with essentially three comics worth of material? Oh, I didn't. Oh, you didn't? Um, no, I wrote like a 28 or something page uh, page comic, which was the first issue. And then I went back and I was like, oh, I wrote more, you know, and I wrote more and I wrote more as a, I wrote a TV pilot. And uh, then I just sort of played with it. And then I realized that the structure of the TV pilot was the actual structure of the comic more in a different way. So it was just sort of like an exploratory process for myself. And I just started playing with it. And I was like, you know what, this just doesn't feel as good as if I combined these two things and work them out differently and work them out into one thing. And so that's what I did. And I just ended up with, whoa, that's, that's a fat comic. <laughs> that's chubby. going to be drawing it, you know. I'm going to better <laughs> ask him. Um, and thankfully, Matt was okay with it, and everyone was on board with it. So I'm really happy. I mean, I like it because I, I kind of feel you talked about how, you know, you're not as interested in comics these days. And I feel like a lot of number one issues don't give me enough to make me really care about the characters or get invested in the story. Um, so I'm kind of glad that you're doing something that's more um, substantial. Uh, seems like you have a better shot of really getting into that world. Yes. Um, well, you mentioned Matt Taylor, uh, the artist on Wolf. And you worked with him previously on Zero, number seven. Um, how did you guys uh, first meet and then eventually come to work on Wolf? Um, we talked for years. I, I talked with him about wanting to do something like maybe in 2010 and 11. And then eventually just um, it was just a case of me just pitching Matt and Matt being, oh, I connect with this. That's what I want to do. It was pretty straightforward. It just took a few years and uh, some attention. Mm-hmm. What do you think he brings artistically to uh, this series that is required for a supernatural noir book? Oh, the atmosphere. The atmosphere and the character. Um, all the characters feel like they're real. All the characters feel like they're genuine genuine people, um, or non-people in some cases. And um, it's playful, but it's playful while establishing the really severe atmosphere at the same time. So the things really work in contrast and noir is really the art of contrast, mm-hmm. you know, on the level of night, light, shadow, darkness, all these different stages. So the fact that his art works so well and is so contrasting is just another thing that brings it out further. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, I just have a couple more questions. Um, I, when I saw the cover to issue one, the thing that struck me was the, the colors on it. Um, so it seems like a book of this nature needs to nail uh, the mood right, which you just talked about with the art, but um, a lot of that has to do with the colors as well. And you have Lee Lowridge on the book. Yeah, although the cover is uh, colored by Matt. Oh, it is? Oh, that's that's pretty cool. So was there a lot of discussion on what the tones would be on Wolf? Mm, not a lot. Uh, Lee gets it. Um, we talked, and we're still nailing that down as we go, but Lee really, get, Lee really gets it, and Lee was actually the colorist on Hellblazer for a long time. So mm-hmm. um, he understands one of the crucial uh, you know, reference points, and I didn't want it to be colored the way Hellblazer is, but I wanted it to have that some, same sort of a mm, magic horror vibe. Mm-hmm. And Lee also lives in California, which means that when I tell him I want it to be burnt out the way California is burnt out for most of the year, he gets exactly what I'm saying. So it's a very, very um, organic collaboration. Great. Uh, well, the tagline for Wolf is blood and magic. So what I want to know is what exactly will the blood to magic ratio be in the book? You know, <laughs> they're sort of the same thing because... There's so many things we don't know about our blood. There's so many things we don't really know about things, and the real difference between magic and science is just the um, the vantage point, you know? Mm-hmm. When we understand something, or when we think, when we want to convince ourselves that we understand something, we call it science. When we don't understand it and we're able to admit it, we call it magic. Um, and uh, this book is about genetics to a certain extent. Hmm. It is about um, it is about what happens, what is in the blood, and how your blood influences things around you, um, how your genetics influence who you are and how uh, other people think of, you know, your traits and of what you look like and what you do. And um, I think it also manages to pull the rug from underneath a bit um, of all that. So blood and magic ratio is 100 to 100. Nice. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking about uh, Wolf with me, Alash. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to the book. Um, I hope it does uh, continue the Hellblazer legacy because that's what I've been looking for. Um, is there anything else that uh, you want to let folks know about, you know, what you're working on in the next couple months uh, before we go? Um, well, you know, I mean, my next book is launching on Wednesday. <laughs> um, material? Yeah, material is launching on uh, on Wednesday, 27th. So that's pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the other thing that I'm really excited about right now. Um, I just have the copies now. It's a book that we're doing entirely in nine panel grid, and oh. it's a book that's very, very influenced by something like Mad Men um, and just by daily life because it doesn't really have a genre. It doesn't really try to uh, work within like any sort of known myths or anything like that. It's a book about people. And it's a book about people, at least it starts as a book about people in America now, and I think that it's uh, really, really pure, uh, artistically pure thing they're doing with Will Tempest and Tom Mueller, and I'm immensely excited by it. I think it's, um, 
I think it's something that I don't even know what it's going to do. I don't know what it's going to do, but I'm really excited to find out. <laughs> what is it about? Like, what's the tagline for it? There's no tagline. <laughs> I mean, I could say that uh, everything is material is the tagline, and that's mm-hmm. it. It's about life. And that's it. All right, sold. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, Alesh. I really appreciate it. Appreciate uh, you making the time and all the great compliments, too. Yeah, no problem. I really love your work, so uh, I'm looking forward to everything you're doing. Thank you, man. Have a great weekend. Oh, you too. Oh, it's almost weekend. Wow. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Colloquium with Alesh Kott. You can find out more about his upcoming projects on his website, aleshkott.com. He's also on Twitter at at alesh underscore Kott. The 60-page debut issue of Wolf will hit comic shops on July 22nd. For more about Colloquium, visit the Sequart Research and Literacy Organization website at sequart.org. Along with the cast, you'll find reviews, documentaries, scholarly articles, and many unique books that discuss and analyze your favorite comic book series and creators. Big thank you to John Raffano, who wrote and performed the Colloquium theme song. John is the guitarist for the post-rock metal band Sonhet. You can listen to the band's new, critically acclaimed second album, Revisionist, at sonhet.bandcamp.com. Until next time, chums.